All right, good morning, good morning. Um, go ahead and wrap up your conversation that you're having uh, with your friends over FaceTime or over the phone or over text message. Um, tell them you're gonna FaceTime them again later. Um, never before have uh, we needed conversation uh, so badly as, uh, as now, and uh, we're so happy that our services have always had an avenue for conversation so that when we really need it, uh, we, we have it. Um, it. It reminds me that, that I think that sometimes people do come into our church and they, uh, when everything's just on a, on a typical Sunday morning at Hamilton, and they are in deep need of conversation themselves. And so that's why this is built into our worship service. I'm so glad that you've had a good conversation. Um, well, good morning. Thank you again for joining us during these times. Uh, we're going to begin our time of teaching now. And at Sedaris, we, we teach from the Bible every week. We do this every week, and so our rhythms aren't changing that much as we go into the living room. We teach from this every week because um, in these pages are life. The, the Bible is life, and so now more than ever is it crucial to open these pages together and find Life. And so thank you for joining us as we do that today, as we lean into the musical sermon of worship music. Thank you, Jordan and Young Ben. And as we lean into the Word of God together, okay? Well, we are continuing our study in 1 Peter that we started at the beginning of the year. Um, and uh, today we're going to be in chapter 4, okay? So open up to 1 Peter in your Bible and go to chapter 4. Uh, right now, let's see here, First Peter, it's towards the end of your Bible, First Peter chapter 4, there's no shame in using the table of contents in order to find First Peter, okay? And um, if you have a copy of your scriptures, uh, I always say that that's best, you, but if you don't, you can use your phone uh, to Google First Peter 4 and anything that Google brings up is going to be very sufficient for our purposes today. So just Google 1 Peter 4. I like to have a copy of the scriptures. I, I, I say it's, it's probably better to have a copy of the scriptures because I think there's just something subconsciously that happens when we're reading from a passage here and holding all of the scriptures, everything that God has revealed to us about himself and about what he's up to in the world. Um, Nothing floats on its own, but it's attached. It's part of this great narrative arc of us, uh, of God revealing himself to us and what he's up to in creation. So I always say scriptures is best, but if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, totally okay. Use your phone and, and Google 1 Peter 4, okay? So we come to 1 Peter 4 today, and as I studied this passage this week, um, I was convinced that God has us here for a reason. Uh, this is right where he wants us today, in these times. This is exactly the passage that we need to be in when we're talking about the hardships, the trials uh, that we're all going through right now. Uh, the, the one initially brought on by the coronavirus, but that has produced a variety of other things in our lives that, that are hardships, trials, and difficulties of suffering. In this passage, Peter is going to unpack suffering for us. Uh, the passage starts in verse 12. Um, the uh, heading, uh, you might have a heading in your Bible that says suffering as a Christian. 
like I do. Okay, so suffering as a Christian is what Peter is going to talk about to, or he's going to speak to today. And if we let him, he can speak directly to us in all the ways that we're suffering right now. Well, how can that be? This letter was written almost 2,000 years ago, but, but what's really unique about people, well, first, the Word of God, it is timeless in, in, in a sense where it does speak to the human experience everywhere for all time. But also, Peter here is doing something very unique in this letter that uh, most other letters in, in the New Testament do not do, and that is, is he is speaking generally and vaguely on purpose. He's purposely speaking generally and vaguely. Well, why would he do this? Well, because he is writing a circular letter. He's writing a letter that was uh, to go to a church. They were to read it aloud at that church, perhaps copy it, and then pass the original to the next church, and then so on and so forth and so forth. This is a circular letter that in Peter's mind would have gone to tens, if not hundreds of churches uh, in the first century. AD. Um, And so what this means is that he's not writing specific instructions to specific certain circumstances. No, he's writing a general, or you could even say um, it has a universal quality to it. So Peter's generally speaking to suffering. He's going to speak to the elements that that are more universal by nature, that which we all experience suffering to be. Okay, Um, and so if we let him, this will speak to us even right now as we experience the the main suffering of the coronavirus outbreak um, in in our cities and in our world, but then um, also any of the other sufferings that we might be experiencing right now. Okay, and so like I said, our passage starts in verse 12. Let's just read that together, okay? Let's read through our passage. It's 12, and we're going to go through verse 19, okay? So this is what Peter says, Beloved, that is uh, the, the gathered Christian church whom he envisions this being read to, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So suffering is the, the, the subject that Peter is dealing with in this passage. And it's structured uh, loosely around four commands that he spaces throughout this passage. And, and, and that is curious. Uh, why would Peter be issuing orders for people who are suffering? Um, why would we demand more things from people who already have a full plate, who are already burdened? Peter, why would you add more suffering on top of them by burdening them with more? 
But this tips us off to something very interesting. Um, Peter is not telling us just how to get through suffering in this passage and in this letter. He's not just telling us how to survive suffering in this letter. He's telling us how to handle suffering. He's telling us how to handle suffering. Now, there's a significant difference between these two things, surviving suffering and handling suffering. Okay, I'm, I'm using the word handle very intentionally here. Handle is an active verb. It's not a passive response. It's not a waiting or a passivity. Handle is an active verb. To handle something means that you're doing something with it. So to handle suffering means you're doing something with your suffering, much like if you handle a tool or open a door with a handle. You're doing something. And, and Peter, if we let him, he's going to tell us how to use suffering. He's going to tell us how to handle it. He's saying that if you handle suffering in the right way, it's going to open the door to something absolutely beautiful. It's going to open the door. Now, now, now we don't want to be dismissive of suffering in our lives or in our world. Um, our, our, our world is undergoing a lot right now. And so I must point out that Peter's commands on how to handle suffering, um, they do not mean that we avoid suffering. They do not mean that we make light of suffering. They, they don't mean that we don't grieve suffering. It doesn't mean that there actually is no pain tied to suffering. It doesn't mean any of those things. We'll, we'll see that here in a minute. But it does mean that the Christian is somebody who rightly oriented can actually make use of the suffering, can actually handle suffering and find life through it. So in this time of hardship, trouble, grief, uncertainty, loss, in this time of suffering, Peter encourages us that there's an opportunity here to find life. There's an opportunity to find life. And so we could take our passage and we could slog through each of these four commands, but, but that, that wouldn't actually do justice to what Peter is doing and actually how he starts. Because Peter starts by telling us what suffering actually is. And it's far more nuanced than you might think. And when you take the time to first understand what suffering actually is, how Peter advises us to handle suffering it actually becomes very clear, very simple, and almost like a, oh, duh, of course this is what we would do in light of suffering. So we're going to take most of our time today actually unpacking what suffering is and what suffering does. And then we'll, we'll follow up by, by going through these four orders that Peter gives us for how to handle it, how to use it as an opportunity to bring life, okay? So, so let's start with what suffering is. And Peter gives us a big clue as to what suffering is in verse 12. In verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. <clears throat> what does he call suffering here? He calls it a fiery trial. A fiery trial. Remember, he's being vague on purpose so that the truth he's communicating can be applied everywhere and anywhere. So suffering, troubles, hardships, difficulties, what does he call them? Fire. 
He says there are fires in our lives. He's not minimizing anything. But it's not just any fire. The Greek word Peter uses for fire has a very specific use tied to it. The word is purose. Purose. It's a purifying fire. Purose. This is the Greek word that is used in the New Testament to refer to a refiner's fire. What is a refiner's fire? We don't have a context for it like the people in in the first century did. In every town there was a blacksmith or a metal worker that would have a fire. And he would use it, he would put metal ore into this fire and, and the metal would become more pure through this refining fire process. It would separate out the pure metal from the excess material called dross. This is something that was in almost every village in the first century. Not really in ours anymore. It happens on an industrial scale for us. But we can understand the concept. This is a refiner's fire. Suffering is, Peter is saying, is a refiner's fire that purifies and it cleanses. Where you put in metal ore and it comes out more pure. And so this is actually the big idea that Peter wants to share in this entire letter, actually. If we actually get to the end of of chapter 4 here, what's happening here is Peter's actually making his closing remarks to the church as a whole. What what we'll see as we continue on is that in chapter 5, Peter transitions to make remarks just to the leaders of these communities. But he's actually, these are his closing remarks, and they're actually wrapping up back to his opening remarks. They're actually following up and and putting an exclamation point on what his thesis is for his whole letter. Um, And we see that in chapter 1, verse 6. Verse 6. There Peter wrote, "Um, in this you rejoice. In what do you rejoice? He he just talked about how um, God is guarding Christians for their full salvation one day. So he says, in this you um, rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, he's contrasting that future salvation with coming with a present reality. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? These passages are, are strikingly similar. It's the same metaphor. We have a fire. We have testing that is happening. <clears throat> this is the key to suffering that Peter says is crucial to the Christian life crucial to the Christian life. Why? Because the goal of the fire, the goal of suffering is to reveal and produce genuine faith. Now, Peter's not sugarcoating anything here. He has said that suffering is nothing short of fire, but it's a refining fire that that tests or proves our faith. What does that mean to test or prove our faith? faith? Well, well, this word um, um, test comes from a Greek word that is really meant to, to poke or to pierce, okay, to poke something, 
to pierce something. And, and so think about it. If you want to know what something really is, you, you poke at it. If it's hanging there, if you want to know what it really is, you, you poke at it. You pierce it a little bit to see what it's all about. And this is exactly what a refining fire does. A refining fire reveals what the true composition of the rock actually is. And so this is what Peter is saying suffering does. It reveals the true composition and quality of our faith. It reveals our true nature. This is what Peter must be saying. This is what Peter must be saying. He's saying that all of us are a unique combination of pure faith, pure faith and the dross. The stuff that you discard. And, and here's the thing, in metal at normal temperatures, you can't tell the difference. You can't see where the pure metal starts and, and, and the dross, the excess, stops. You, you actually can't see that, but the fire creates the condition where the pure parts can handle it, but the false parts cannot, and therefore the fire separates it out. It's a purifying fire. And so depending upon the nature of the rock, sometimes the, the rock will be almost altogether incinerated um, if it's almost nothing but dross. And in some cases, if it's very pure, much of the rock will remain. It'll be even purer in those times. So why exactly is Peter using this metaphor? What does this mean to us spiritually? Well, this refiner's fire is about our suffering, and particularly about how suffering uncovers our faith. Now, now, having faith in something is just a vague way of talking about what you trust. To have faith in someone means that you trust them. To have faith in Jesus means that you trust him, that you trust Jesus. And so this is what Peter must be saying, okay? about suffering, about what suffering actually is. He's saying that that suffering, whether it be a trial, a hardship, suffering is that refining fire that shows you what you really trust. Suffering is a fire in your life that reveals and shows you where your trusts are actually placed. Because see, you have a divided heart. You don't know it. Um, and you won't know it until you go through the fire. I have a divided heart. I have a divided heart. I don't know exactly how it's divided, and I won't know how it's divided until I go through a fire of suffering. And just like a piece of metal, you don't know what's going to come out of the fire when you put it in. If you're a Christian, you are this spiritual amalgam of pure gold. That, that is your faith and trust in God and dross, that is your trust and faith in a lot of other things. But here's the thing that Peter is saying, you won't know how much you are of each until you go through the fire. You cannot refine metal ore without introducing heat. In the same way, you can't uncover your trust in God or other things or grow in your trust in God without troubles. That's what Peter's saying here. We all start out the Christian life saying, I trust in God, I trust in God. But the fact is that you have a lot of other things that you trust in as well, that you just don't know about. And you won't know how much you trust in them until the fiery trials enter your life, heat you up, and separate out 
separate out how much of your trust was in God and how much of your trust was in other things. In fact, you, you know you're in the fire of suffering when, when you find out that the things that you just thought were nice before were actually very, 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 very important to you. You actually trusted them for quite a bit. Sometimes you don't find that out until they're ripped away from you. That they might have had your allegiance more than anything. They were the things that you trusted. They were the things that you lived for. And you didn't understand that until a trial of suffering took them away. A trial is whenever, whenever there's a separation made between your allegiance to God and your allegiance to other things, and you can't have them both. In the metal ore at normal temperatures, those allegiances can live together. In the furnace, they can't. See, when your circumstances are going well, when, when everything is hunky-dory in the summertime of Seattle, God and the other things that you trust, those allegiances, they can live together. But in trials, in the furnace, they can't. And you had no idea how much those other things actually meant to you, actually had a hold on your heart until the fire comes. And when does the fire come? Whenever those things are threatened, whenever those things feel like they're slipping out of your grasp, a fire is when there is a fork in the road. You can have your allegiance to God or you can have your allegiance to the other thing, but you can't have them both. Then you're in the fire. Then you're in the fire. We're in a fire right now. All of our allegiances are being challenged. And, 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 but there's two ways that a fire happens, okay? Sometimes you're given a choice. Sometimes you're not. Sometimes you're given a choice and sometimes you're not. What do I mean by that? Well, the best way to contrast these two things is to, to handle an example. Take your job, for instance, okay? Um, when you're employed, you have no idea how much your job means to you. You, you can have some... Um, Maybe you can have some thoughts about it, but you really don't know experientially how much your job means to you, how much you trust it for a variety of things in your life. You can say, it's God, it's God who I trust, but, but then the fire comes and threatens your job, and it could look one of two ways, okay? Um, there might be a situation in your job where if you stick up for what's right, if you tell the truth, It'll jeopardize your job, maybe your whole career. That's one type of fire. The other type of fire or trial is when something is important to you, like your job, and you lose it. It's suddenly cut out from under you. You see that? And in that situation, to trust and obey God is hard. It's hard because the object of your trust in the past for security, money, happiness, whatever your job brought you was your job. And now you have to learn how to trust God to deliver those things for you. It's a trial and it's difficult. It's a hardship. You see, in one situation, trusting in and obeying God causes the job loss. And in the other situation, the job loss uncovers where your trust really was and makes it hard for you to trust and obey God. 
And so the coronavirus is really a fire of the second of these two. Now we're, we're presented with different trials in the midst of it where we have the choice to, to trust, um, trust something to, take a, to handle our increased anxiety or to trust God. We have those two. Uh, but we, we often preach to things like that. But this coronavirus really gives us the opportunity to preach to, to trials where things are ripped out from under us, where things are taken away from us because the coronavirus is primarily a fire in this sense. It has eliminated many of the things we trusted to deliver us hope. Uh, maybe you're like me and um, <clears throat> what was really fueling you this winter was the vacation you had planned for the spring where you and your wife were, were going to celebrate your 10-year anniversary on the beaches of Barcelona without kids. And that was snatched away from you. Maybe this is the year that, that you were going to find that special somebody and get engaged. And now dating has been snatched away from you. Maybe you were, this is the year you were hoping to grow and advance in your career. And now your entire industry is frozen. See, the coronavirus has snatched away a lot, of the th a lot of our hopes, a lot of the things that we trusted to deliver us hope. But it didn't just take away our hopes, it took away many of our joys. Lots of those are gone now. Sporting events, theaters, gyms, shopping, good food and drink, happy hours, social meetups, uh, poof, they've been cut out from under us. They're gone. They're gone for the foreseeable future. We don't know when they're going to come back. So coronavirus snatched our hopes, snatched our joys, but it also snatched our securities away from us. Uh, the most direct, uh, starking example is our health. But what about the economy? For many people, the economy is that which provides them security. And boom, stock market is struggling. The coronavirus has taken that security, that security away from us. So the coronavirus is this fiery ordeal that has cut out a lot of these things that we hoped in, that we took joy in, that we put our security in, our security in, poof, they're gone. And the hopelessness you feel, the depression you feel, the anxiety you feel is because your, your hope, your joy, your securities have been snatched away by this virus. They're no longer there. You see, we can have no idea how much we trust in things until they're taken away. We can say all day long when it's nice outside, it's God, it's God who I trust. But you can have no idea until you're in the fire and you're forced in some sense to choose between your trusts. It's only in situations like these that you can discover what your trusts really are, what you've placed your trust in, but here's the opportunity. It also means that only in situations like this do you have the opportunity to ditch them, to get rid of them. It's a glorious opportunity. It takes the fires of suffering to refine our loyalty to God. Whenever you have to choose between God and a job, God and status, God and popularity, God and money, God and pleasure, God and anything, you're in a, you're in a fire. 
And only then can you really refine your loyalty to God and know that God comes first. Only then, only then, folks. You can sit there in nice times and good circumstances and say that, that God is first, but, but you can't know for certain until you're in the fire. You don't know where your trust truly lie until you're in the fire. Okay, so suffering, it's a fire, a refiner's fire. It reveals our trust. That's the first thing that Peter's telling us about what suffering actually is. It reveals our trust, but it also goes further than that. Suffering, like a refining fire, also shows the inadequacy of our other trusts. Suffering, it's a refiner's fire, and, show, and so it also shows us the inadequacy of our other trusts to address realities. Um, because here's the great thing about the refining fire, okay? It destroys, it incinerates, it puts to death that which is unimportant, that's, your, that's the dross, our trust in other things. It shows you uh, the gold can take the fire. Your faith in God, your trust in God can take the fire. But your trust in other things, they can't take the fire. It means that suffering shows you the inadequacy of those other things that you trust in. Suffering more than anything demonstrates how hollow the things are that we trust in other than God. It does. When things are going well, you can't know whether things are adequate or not to carry you. It's only in the fire that you can tell if they have what it takes to make it through the worst of times. When you're in the fire, any functional thing you trust in other than God, it's going to melt away. It's going to disintegrate. You can trust career, social relationships, sexual attraction, money, success. But how will these things really help you in the big trials of life? When you're facing the reality of the coronavirus, when you're facing the reality of intense sickness, when you're facing the reality of old age, and ultimately, all of these things show themselves as inadequate to address the reality of death. Ultimately, that, that's where we're all going. And ultimately, every trust that you have is going to let you down at that step. And so now is an opportunity to refine ourselves and see these things that are inadequate. Because... Um, one, one big hint at identifying when um, perhaps uh, something, when you're in the fire and when you have lost something, when something has been taken away that you deeply trusted, is when you detect the feeling of meaninglessness. Whenever your life becomes meaningless, it means that something other than God that you have functionally placed your trust in instead of Him, it's died. But if God is the thing you put your love into, if God is the thing that you put your love into and get your love out of, if God is the thing you put your significance into and get your significance out of, if God is the thing you put your creativity into and get your creativity out of, if God is the thing you trust in, if you have a heart refined by suffering to put your faith in Him and Him alone, you will never face meaninglessness. 
It doesn't matter what happens to all those things around you or what trials you might be in. You have placed your very meaning in God and he in turn will give you meaning in life. And it takes trials to do that. Here's the key. No one gets there without fire. No one gets there, Peter's saying, without suffering. No one gets there without ordeals, the trials, the troubles, the tribulations that make apparent the other trusts in our lives and reveal them to us as inadequate vessels of our trust. As inadequate to address the the realities of what life is actually going to throw at us. So if you put your faith in God and in Him alone, you will never feel meaningless. It doesn't matter whether you're sick, bedridden, stuck in your house for who knows how long. Isolated. doesn't matter if you've failed in some significant way. Feelings of meaningless come about because a trial took away the false God that you trusted in. They've died. And do you know why? Because they can't take the heat. They can't take the heat of reality. There's only one God who can. And you know what he said? He said that he will never, 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 ever leave you. Never, ever leave you. And it's the times like these when we realize that, we, that the things that we trusted for hope, joy, and security are inadequate to, to deliver, but God is different. In the fire, he glows like gold. Even though so many other things have left you, God is with you. Maybe that's what you need to hear right now. After you've had everything stripped away from you, God is still around. And he is still with you right now in your living room. And he's not leaving. God is with you. You see, when the sun sun is shining, everything's going great. When life is normal and happy and fine, not only is there no way to know where our trusts actually lie, but there's no insight, there's no perspective, there's no wisdom, there's no knowledge as to how inadequate and insufficient those things are to carry our trust. They can't carry us. So you're suffering right now. It's an incredible opportunity, not only to see what you're trusting in, you see the the, the pure metal separated out from the dross, but to see how inadequate other things are at getting you through the realities of life. And so now I want to ask you, what is that for you? When the coronavirus hit, you found a lot of things that you trusted for hope, joy, and security were ripped away from you. They vanished. They couldn't take the heat. Those things are gone now, okay? Those things are gone. You're in in the fire. What were those things? Take time to identify them and then identify what you were trusting them to accomplish in your life that they can't accomplish anymore, okay? Um, A few examples. Did you have to cancel a a vacation like I did? Identifying it is is step one. But then going deeper into asking what was I trusting that vacation to do is the next step. How did that affect you? What did that tell you you were trusting that vacation to do? 
Now we're identifying our trust. They, they've been separated out. It's very easy to point at them now. In fact, it's so easy to point at them. Um, I'd rather not answer that question into the camera. That's how, that, that's how, that's how um, convicting it is for me to see that, that trust in vacation put to the side and be like, oh, that's actually really inadequate. That's actually really insufficient. That's actually pretty embarrassing that I trusted vacation to do that. Now that it's gone, how are you going to trust God for that? That's the question. Here's a, a, um, a, a second example. Have you not been able to work out like me? What disappointments has that surfaced in your life? What were you really trusting your workout or your gym to deliver for you? Um, health, attraction, achievement. This fire of the coronavirus has given you the opportunity to identify that, to see how it's unable to deliver in light of reality. And now that it's gone, what might it look like to depend on God for health, for attraction, for achievement? Do you see, now we're in the fire. Now we're being refined. Now you have the chance to ask God uh, for really new definitions of health, attraction, and achievement. Now that's something awesome. That's something beautiful. This is how our faith and our trust in God becomes beautiful because you know what's going to happen if you ask God those questions? He's going to give you new, more robust definitions of health. He's going to give you a new, more robust definition of attractiveness. He's going to give you a new, more robust definition of attraction. And then do you know what he's going to do on top of that? He's going to say those new, more robust definitions that are more beautiful than the old ones you had, I will fulfill those because I'm not going anywhere. Wow. Wow. This is an opportunity to trade out our trusts. Here's another from my personal experience that's really subtle. Has the coronavirus taken away routine from your life? What were you trusting routine to deliver to you? I'm, I'm a person of routine. What were you trusting to, for it to de deliver to you? Security, peace, normalcy, confidence. Routine can't deliver those things to you now. What would it look like for you to instead trust God for those things? Do you see? Now we're getting down to, to real uh, maturation, to real growth, to, to real discipleship. Now we're getting there. Now we're, we're, we're learning to trust in God more and lessen our trust in other things, the other hollow things that they couldn't deliver for us. Now that coronavirus has hit, we as the people of God have the opportunity to identify those things, all of them, and learn to trust God and emerge from our homes in a month or two or six more beautiful than ever more beautiful than ever, more attractive than ever. Or you could hunker down. You could hunker down and you could waste this opportunity. You could. You could spend your days just getting through and just surviving suffering, not handling suffering. There's plenty of tools that will let you do that. There's plenty of tools. Netflix is still coming into your living room, just like it's coming into mine. It'll, let, it'll help you just survive suffering if you let it, okay? instead of letting you experience it. When we go into the furnace 
and experience the hot temperatures of suffering, it separates those trusts out, right? There's no way it doesn't do that. There's no way it doesn't do that. But we still have the option to hold on to our dross, to hold on to our other trusts and trust in them again when we're given the opportunity here in a couple of months. In the refining process, the, the dross it floats up to the top and the metal worker scrapes it off, throws it away, gets rid of it because it's useless. And so the question is, are you through reflection, through prayer, through contemplation, through confession, through repentance, are you going to let God do that? Are you going to let God do that? Or do you want to hold on to the other things? Are they really that important to you? Lean into prayer, lean into reflection, lean into your relationship with the good metal worker and let him remove those for you. The hard work has already been done. You're already in the fire. You're there. You're in the fire. Don't let another fire of sickness or joblessness or death reveal the same inadequate trusts again. Deal with the inadequate trusts that are surfacing in your life. Ask God to remove them from you so that when the next trial comes, you can go to an even deeper and more genuine level. I know that many of us, we've, we've uh, asked God for wisdom. We've asked God to increase our faith. You've asked God to grow your love for him, your maturity, to give you integrity. These are great prayers because they see God as the one who possesses all of these great uh, things that we can't grab with our hands. <clears throat> But when we pray these things, God is bound to bring furnaces into our lives. And that might be hard to hear. And at the risk of being misunderstood right now, I'm going to say this. If, if you've been praying prayers like these, this fire of the coronavirus is the answer to that prayer. How are you going to respond? Will you let the metal worker make you beautiful? It's only now in the fire that you have the chance to exercise the muscles of your will to decide what you're going to trust. You see, some people go through trials and they come out angry and bitter. Some people go through the same trials and come out compassionate and glowing. Why? Because of how they conceptualize of suffering and how they respond. And Peter tells us how to do it, okay? He structures this entire passage around these four commands, okay? So let's look at them now, okay? <clears throat> the first one is in verse 12. The first one is in verse 12. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised. And then skip down to verse 13. He modifies it. Do not be surprised, but rejoice. This is the first command. Now, now Peter, he's not a masochist, okay? He's not saying rejoice because you're in pain. Uh, back in chapter one, remember, he says, you're grieving because of your trials. And he's not rebuking anybody for grieving. Um, when uh, he, he says grieving is very appropriate, but he says, you know what? Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. What does it look like to be surprised at a trial? Well, to be surprised at a trial means to say, I can't believe this is happening right now. How is this happening to me? I thought God loves me. You see that? 
being surprised at suffering is actually a very unique commingling between um, self-loathing, self-pity, and bitterness. When we're surprised at suffering, what we actually are is self-loathing, self-pity, and bitter. Um, these are the emotions of surprise in the midst of suffering. And what Peter's saying is you can't use a suffering, uh, you can't use suffering, you can't use a fire, you can't handle it in the right way if that's your attitude. You can't do it with an attitude like that. Because what the Bible says, and, and Peter says it here, too, is that, is that this is the, the faithful witness of all the scriptures, is that when troubles come into your life, they are mercy. Peter says uh, later here in, um, in verse 14 that if you experience fiery trials, you are blessed. Uh, the, the biblical witness is united to that fact. Um, they're united on the reality that this is the main way that God is going to grow you in this life. And it's going to seem strange to you. And it's going to seem very irrational to you. It, it might not make any sense to you to teach you delayed gratification, to, to teach you all these things. And as parents, we get this. We get this. Uh, um, if you're not a parent, it's okay. If you don't get this, let, I'll, I'll let you off the hook. But as parents, we know that there is no way to grow a child into maturity without constantly being accused of cruelty. <laughs> There's no way around it. I'm, I'm constantly accused of cruelty by my children. And I've been around them 24 seven for the past three weeks. So I'm convinced of it now more uh, than ever before. There's no way to bring a child up and grow them without them saying, this isn't fair, that isn't fair. How could you do this to me? Even shouting um, that, that, that you are a bad father in tears back at you. They accuse you of cruelty. Now, some of you have little babies and you're holding them. You say, oh, no way. There's no way little, little Jessica June is going gonna, is gonna to accuse me of cruelty. Look how much work I've put into keeping her alive. Sorry, Jennifer June, uh, keeping her alive. Oh, come on. Just wait till they start talking. And then it doesn't stop until they leave the house. It wasn't until I left the house that I was able to apologize to my mother for the years of, of cruelty that I accused her of. Um, my, my kids think their life should be Cinnamon Toast Crunch, TV, and ice cream all day long. And it's our, it's our job to introduce adversity into their lives so that they can grow. Parenthood teaches you that you should never complain about any suffering that God uh, brings to your door, that he lets happen to you, that he might even be responsible for himself. He's your father. He's given it to us to bring us into life. And this is our opportunity for maturation and growing our faith. Don't be surprised. Instead, rejoice, Peter says. Why rejoice? Well, he says rejoice because it actually means that, that you are following the very pattern of Jesus Christ. You see, because Jesus, when he suffered and he went to the cross afterwards, God ends up giving him the, the name that's higher above every other name. Peter says, don't be surprised. Fires happened to God. Rejoice because you're in the same pattern. Rejoice because you're making progress. It doesn't mean that we, that we don't grieve in light of, of suffering. 
Um, we, we grieve a lot. Jesus's life, uh, he was called a man of sorrows. He grieved at his own suffering. He walked around uh, during his ministry and he grieved at the suffering of others. He didn't suppress his emotions. That's not Christianity, but he was never surprised by suffering. We never see an ounce of self, self-loathing in Jesus. We never see uh, an ounce of bitterness. We don't even see a, whoa, I can't believe this happened because he knows how it works. He knows that God has a plan. You see, what will sink you in life is not the grief that's tied to suffering. It's if you get stymied in the self-pity and the bitterness. It's if you're surprised by it. Okay. The second command, don't be surprised. The second command is in verse 15. Peter says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. What an interesting thing to say. He says, in your suffering, don't sin. He's saying, while you're suffering, don't go off and commit sins to ease your suffering. Peter is asking us to obey. Um, when, when you go through troubles, it's very easy not to obey. It's very easy to stop going to church. It's very easy to stop serving others. It's very easy to stop praying. It's really easy to turn your back on God. It's really easy to get into escape sins, the things that you know are wrong, but you just do them because they give you a little bit of relief. They give you a, a brief high to overcome how bad you feel. Um, Charles Spurgeon he was a, uh, a British preacher in the late 1800s, and he once said this. He said, an ounce of sin will hurt you 10,000 more times than suffering. Because suffering met obediently. It just makes you into a better person, but a sin makes you more selfish. Stay put and obey, Peter says. Don't suffer as a meddler. Verse 16 is our third command here. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God. You see, don't be ashamed when you suffer. Furnaces, and don't shame others for their suffering. Uh, Furnaces are not only a part of life, they are God's plan for your life. There's no reason to feel shame for suffering. We could say, We can say a lot about this, but suffice to say that if everything is true about suffering up to the point that that, that we've said today, up to this point that we've been talking about, suffering is to be treasured. Suffering is perhaps even to be coveted. That's why Peter says the the opposite reaction is actually more appropriate, to glorify and to thank God. Wow. The fourth command is down in verse, uh, verse 19, okay? Peter says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will <clears throat> entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer entrust themselves to God. Why can you trust God in suffering? Well, out of all the other, out of all the other religions in our world, no one has our God. Now, there's lots of wisdom in all these other religions, but Christianity is the only religion that says you have a God who suffers. Even Judaism, our our closest cousin that Christianity is based on, we stand on the shoulders of Judaism, it does not have a God who suffered. 
It's absent that. In fact, after Jesus died and rose again, well, the biggest thing that most of the biggest objection that many Jews had to the apostles who were trying to tell them about the gospel was like, how can he be God? He suffered. No one has a God who suffers. Only Christianity does. Jesus Christ, he suffered socially. He was rejected by everyone, stripped naked, bare, put up on a public display. He was left by everybody. Um, he suffered um, physically more than we can understand. Uh, he suffered spiritually, alienation and desolation. He was cut off from God himself on the cross so that we would never have to be cut off from God. So when we take our suffering to God and we lament it to him, when we grieve our suffering to God, he's the only God in the whole world that has ever been conceived of. He's real, by the way, but he's the only one that can look back at us and he says, I know what you're going through. I've been there. He's the only God that can empathize with suffering. The other gods, what, what do the other gods say? No matter what you say to them, they have the same response. You better be good, but not our God. Our God is a validating, empathizing God with our suffering because he himself suffered far more than we ever will. He himself suffered so that we might not suffer like he did. If you can't entrust yourself to him to trust him, who in the world are you going to trust? Yourself? Come on. Let us commit ourselves to a God who has suffered like us, even now. Entrust yourself to him. Why? Because Peter says that he cares for you. That's in chapter 5. It says, cast all your anxieties on God, all your sufferings on God, because he cares for you. Let him make you more beautiful. Let him, now that he has brought to light, the, 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 now that the suffering has brought to light your trust in him and your trust in the world, let him remove those things. They're inadequate anyway. Let him remove those things and make you more beautiful, make you more attractive than ever in this life. After this is behind us in and, and one month, two months, six months, whatever, all of us are going to emerge from our homes. And there's going to be a beautiful people and there's going to be a struggling people. And it's going to be very clear who those people are. It's going to be very clear whose trusts were able to sustain them and whose trusts weren't able to sustain them. That time is coming, friends. It's coming and it's at our doors without a doubt. And the struggling people are going to be looking to those people who are glowing, who have the genuine faith of gold, and, and, and they're going to ask, how did you do it? How did you do it? And the shining people are going to respond, have you considered Jesus? Have you considered Jesus? And invite them to Alpha. That's what's going to happen in a month, two months. I'm not sure when. We postponed our alpha from the spring. We rescheduled it for the fall. That's what we did. Because this summer is going to be a time when that conversation is going to be happening over and over again with your friends, with your coworkers. 
I think our alpha is going to be packed. I think it's going to be full to the brim. Let God refine you. Let him use you to reveal how adequate he is for everybody. Will you let him make you more beautiful in this? Will you let him make you more beautiful in this fire? Pray with me. Father, we come before you now and we, we, we thank you that you are a God who has suffered so that you can empathize with us. You suffered on the cross and in your life so that you can empathize with all of our suffering, Lord. We thank you that you are a God like that. God, right now we, we grieve the trials that you have us in. We admit that they're hard. We shed tears over them even now, God. And at the same time, we rejoice and we thank you for bringing them into our lives to show us where our trusts are really placed and to show us in your grace and in your mercy that the things we were trusting in, they don't have what it takes to hold us, to comfort us. Only you have that. We thank you that you're still here and that you're still doing that for us. So I pray for all of my friends right now, Lord. Would you give them the strength to handle suffering, to lean into suffering, to lean into you right now? For my friends who might not be Christians and it might be reaching out right now, just trying to consider something else because all of their trusts have been taken away from them too. Lord, I just pray that you would make yourself so evident to them. Reveal yourself and your gospel through your son to them right now in their living room, wherever they're watching this. We thank you. We look forward to what you are are up to right now, to seeing what you will produce in our lives and in our city and in our world. We thank you and we love you. Amen.